0: The truths that Paul confronts us with in the opening verses of this chapter teach us very clearly that churches are more vulnerable than you think. Here at Belvedere Road Church, we're more vulnerable than you think. Now these first 15 verses in this chapter contain some quite shocking truths and far too many churches very sadly have made shipwreck of their faith because they've never taken these warnings seriously. It's always about someone else over there, could never happen here. They hear the words but they do nothing about it. And so they are like the man who builds his house on sand and when the storm comes, the house falls down. Only in this case, it isn't one man, it's an entire church. The church can be safe and the church will be safe if it hears Christ's words and does them. When a church goes astray and stops being what a local church should be, it's the fault of the church. I hope you realise that. It's not God's fault. It's the church's fault. God has given his church everything she needs. But we have a duty and a responsibility to handle his means of grace correctly. It doesn't follow that God will simply intervene, overrule, and keep every local church, no matter what. If that were true, every church that's ever been established in the city of Liverpool would still be open. If that were true, why did Christ give us the seven letters at the beginning of Revelation? With, in most cases a plea for repentance and a return to the first things, or a warning that Christ himself will remove from you the lampstand? Or do even warnings like that largely leave us unmoved? There are things that we actively need to hear in these verses. There are things that we actively need to heed In these verses. So, are you ready to listen? And are you ready to do them? We're going to break down the text into three sections. We're going to look first of all at verses one to six. And verses one to six simply teach this don't be gullible. Don't be gullible. We're going to see something a little bit unusual in Paul this morning because he's going to use quite a deep sense of irony in a number of the things that he's going to say. He begins by saying, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. You've been told by these other men who've come in that I'm not worth listening to, I'm just a silly old fool. Well, please, give this silly old fool a hearing for just a little bit longer. Just, hu- just humor me for a moment, perhaps we might say. Oh, that you would bear with me in this folly. And of course, the irony even there is that they've already given themselves to folly. As they've heeded these other teachers who've come into their church. The folly of the false teachers in verse 4. And at verse 2, Paul uses a powerful illustration. Now, in a few weeks' time, we're going to be remembering a young Jewish woman called Mary who was, as the Scriptures tell us, betrothed to be married to a man called Joseph. They were not yet married, but betrothal, which would have involved a firm agreement between their two fathers... Betrothal was a binding contract. It was already a done deal. If a girl who was betrothed was unfaithful to her fiancé, it was considered to be as serious as adultery and treated like adultery. Likewise, when Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant before he receives a visit from the angel his first thought is to give her papers of divorce because you can't just walk away from a betrothal. It's a binding contract. And Paul puts himself in the place of a father who has betrothed his daughter to the best husband he could ever have imagined her to be with. His daughter is the Corinthian church. And the bridegroom is Christ. And Paul's great fear is that just as Eve was tempted by Satan in the garden, the church is being tempted to turn her back on her betrothed to another. Paul knows that in Christ, but the Christ that he's been preaching... In Christ, they have the perfect bridegroom. And it's in the simplicity of the gospel that they've been established that by God's grace, God has done everything that you need for salvation through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that you may enter into it by faith, by repentance of your sins, And trusting in Christ and believing in Christ as Saviour and Lord. The simplicity of the gospel. But by his craftiness, says Paul to the Corinthian church, Satan is seeking to deceive you into going after another bridegroom. And he's doing it by corrupting your minds. Exchanging gospel truth... For a counterfeit. This is Paul's message. Now, these men who come into the church in Corinth, they use the name Jesus, but he's not the Jesus I preach to you. There are different things attached to their message. It sounds like the gospel, but it isn't the gospel. In their version, certain parts are missing. In their version, they use the same words as me, but they don't mean the same thing. In their version, they've added other bits on, which they say are also necessary, in addition to the gospel that I preach to you. And these things, says Paul, come from a very different source. We'll hear more of that later on. And you're moving away, and you're following after this other My fear is that you may well continue to put up with it. More irony, because in large measure, they already are. I'm sure as Paul says to them, I fear that you might. In their minds, he wants the penny to drop. We already are. And that in realizing that that's the case, he can bring them back to their senses. And look at how Paul describes his feelings for them in verse 2. I'm like a jealous father who now only wants one thing. That groom for his daughter. And for his daughter to be the most pure and beautiful bride for her groom. He can see them together. And what a glorious union it is in Paul's mind. And he wants nothing else for them and he wants nothing less for them. And this is godly jealousy. We tend only to use the word jealous as we might use the word covet. Jealous for something that isn't ours. Jealous for something that we do not have but I want it. Well that's a sinful jealousy. But there's another type of jealousy which is not sinful. It's a jealousy that desires to keep and guard that which is already in place. It's the kind of jealousy that wants to keep and guard a relationship that must be exclusive. It's the kind of jealousy that a husband and wife should have towards each other to guard their marriage. If a husband or wife sees their spouse with another, and behaving in a way that gives the merest hint that there could be something developing that ought not to be developing, that jealousy immediately kicks in. And Paul has this kind of jealousy for the church. You're getting involved in something that you ought not to be involved in. You're moving away Paul's jealousy is that this church would remain Christ's own special people until that day when he returns and takes them to be with himself as we've been singing in some of our hymns. Now the frightening thing that's going on in Corinth is that these false teachers have come in and they are switching bridegrooms on the church. The true one for a false one and here's the really frightening thing the Corinthian church haven't even noticed the Corinthian church haven't realized it's happening these guys have come in they seem to be using all the same words as Paul but a great deception has taken place in the life of that church Now these so-called eminent apostles, verse 5. Paul's not talking about the 12 apostles back in Jerusalem. He's talking about these false teachers who are being lauded and fated as if they're the the greatest example of apostleship that the church has yet seen. But of course, Paul himself was the last of the apostles, the one born out of due time. But these so-called apostles, Eminent super apostles as some call them today they've arrived in a packaging that has completely overwhelmed the church it's a bit like that scene in the early few minutes of the film Toy Story on Andy's bed remember the film? For those of you who have never seen Toy Story, the toys come alive whenever there's no people there. And all the toys belong to this young boy called Andy. Andy's favourite toy is Woody the cowboy doll. But it's Andy's birthday. A day of horror because he's going to get new toys. And Andy gets a new toy. Buzz, Buzz. Lightyear, space ranger, this wonderful action figure. And there's that scene as Buzz stands on Andy's bed because they've all come alive because all the kids have gone away. And all the toys are confronted with Buzz Lightyear for the very first time. And you remember that scene as Woody... Fears that he's about to be usurped as the favourite toy. These aren't real wings. He can't fly. This isn't a laser beam. It's just a little light bulb that blinks. Laser envy, (laughs) says Mr Potato Head. Of course, Woody's correct. Buzz is just a toy. But, ooh, the packaging the packaging, look at what he's got that you haven't, Woody. Look what he can do that you can't, Woody. And very sadly, in far too many churches, too little attention is paid to what is being taught, what the preacher is actually teaching and it's all about the packaging and as long as the packaging impresses you'd be astonished to see what people are happy to put up with all of us are much more gullible than we would ever admit if the packaging is right You must not allow how the message is packaged to become more important than the message. But that's the problem in Corinth. The same is true about everything, for example, that concerns our Sunday services. What are we doing right now? This is the church at worship. Now, lots of people don't consider listening to the sermon as part of worship. Of course, it is. This is the church at worship. And it's all about what is going on right now in your heart and mind. That's what it's about. What's going on right now in your heart and mind? That's worship. Or not, as the case may be. Depends what's going on in your heart and mind right now. And you must not allow how it's all packaged to be more important than the content and the substance. What difference it will make tomorrow and next week is far more important than how it feels right now. Now, this isn't a mandate for poor preaching. It's not a mandate for shoddy, sloppy, disorganized worship. But what is being taught is far more important than who is saying it and how it's being said. Some of you know uh, Phil Arthur up in Lancaster. It's put a smile on Katie's face anyway. She used to go to his church when she was at uni up there. For many years he was the pastor of a Baptist church up in Lancaster, He said this, this is great. The man who has nothing to say, but says it with grace and skill, is still a man with nothing to say. Say that one more time. The man with nothing to say, but who says it with grace and skill, is still a man with nothing to say. Too many Christians today, sadly, can't even recognize that nothing's been said. And they think they've just heard a great message. But they were simply impressed by the packaging it came in. Don't be one of them. Now, Paul continues in verse 5. I'm accused of being way more inferior than these super apostles have come amongst you. But I'm not inferior in any way to them. Yes, they're very different to me. But you see, you're looking for the wrong thing. But I'm not inferior to them. Now, Paul admits, I'm not trained for the public platform the way they are. If gospel ministry is down to how you've been trained for the public platform, they would leave me choking on their dust as I try to keep up with them. But, says Paul, but I am trained in the truth you need. I'm trained in the truth you need. And it may not be packaged the way you like it to be. But I give you the truth you need. Because I got it from Christ. When a church places a higher premium on the packaging and presentation than they do on the truth. It's a church in big trouble. When a church thinks that improving the packaging and presentation will produce a better spiritual experience. It's a church in big trouble. Because it's a church that thinks that packaging and presentation can produce something that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God can't. And it's a church in big trouble. Because it's looking for the right thing in all the wrong places. And it assumes that having a good experience at church today must be of God and must be good if it feels good. We're more more gullible than we think. Be careful. Not that church can't be a good experience. But be careful how you're judging things. You see, look back at verse 4 it's possible for a different spirit to enter a church and lead it astray. What's that saying? It's not not teaching that genuine believers can be overpowered by an evil spirit because I don't believe that can happen. It's not suggesting that true believers will lose their salvation because I don't believe that can happen. But it does say that a church can entertain another spirit and be deceived and be led astray by it and the church can be lost even if the individual believers are saved as of out of the fire but the church can be lost we're more gullible than we think we are we have to be very careful And part of this problem that's seen in Corinth is seen in another attitude that's existing within the church. And that's in verses 7 to 12. And we'll put it like this. The best command the biggest fee. She says, did, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preach the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. He talks about the churches in Macedonia having supported him. Whether it's in the world of professional football, whether it's in the company boardroom, whether it's the chair of a local council, uh, whether it's the chancellor of a university, whatever it is, there's hardly a week goes by when there isn't some public outrage over the size of a salary or a bonus or a pension pot or a payoff or an expenses claim that someone's had the fat cats are always in the news and of course the reply is often heard but if you want the best you've got to pay the going rate you've got to be prepared top you've got to be prepared to pay top dollar if you want the best And this actually lies at the heart of another accusation that's being put against Paul. These super apostles, as with all acclaimed public speakers in the secular Greek world, could command high fees for their services. And the more in demand you are, the more you can claim. And along with this went a form of patronage, or you might even call it sponsorship, whereby an individual or an organization would offer to pay you. But they want you then to act a little bit like their brand ambassador. They expect something in return from you. A bit like the sponsorship you see in football. There are company logos everywhere, aren't there? On their shirts, on the boards all around the edge of the pitch, on the backdrop when they're being interviewed after the match, when a manager sits at the desk before the match or after the match being interviewed. There's all the logos at the back. There's even the strategically placed bottles right there they're always the right way around so you can see the label have you noticed they're not there by accident you know people have paid millions of pounds to have that bottle on that desk even the name of the stadium sometimes this kind of thinking has entered the church paul arrived at corinth free of charge Can't be much good if he doesn't command a fee, say the super apostles. Oh, yeah. But then they heard that the Macedonian churches have supported him. And then the Corinthian church becomes suspicious. There's some very wrong and muddled thinking going on inside the Corinthian church. They wanted to be able to pay Paul. Well, then they'd have some claim over him, wouldn't they? He who pays the piper... We can call a tune. But Paul arrives in Corinth and has no money changing hands. He wants nothing that can be misconstrued, can be a distraction, or can be a barrier to the gospel. He comes free of charge. He has financial assistance from other churches. But the money they give to him comes with no strings attached. By the way, that's something that we have to bear in mind. When we give to people who are involved in ministry... We give to them with no strings attached. We, If we can't trust them with the money, we shouldn't be giving it to them in the first place. We don't give them money with all kinds of conditions. We aid them in their ministry. You use this, whatever you need. That's what's happened with Paul. The Macedonian churches have given him this money. That's what's meant by robbing them. He's referring to the fact that although he's received their money... They have no claim over him as to how he's going to use it. It's free for him to do as he sees fit. Now, that's not how it normally works, you see. If I've paid you, there's a string attached. And I can direct you or pull you back whenever I want to. No, that's not how the Macedonian churches are supporting Paul. Here, go do what you do. And he does. They get nothing for their money except the knowledge that Paul is doing his work for God. And that's enough for them. To the eyes of the outside world in those days, it's as if Paul is robbing those who've supported him. They're not getting anything in return from him financially. And these voices are saying, he takes their money but he doesn't take yours. They mean more to him than you do. He thinks more of those churches than he thinks of you in Corinth. And in verse 11, Paul says, do you really think I don't love you? And he's so exasperated, he doesn't even bother in answering the question. God knows how my heart is toward you. And Paul explains in those verses that he chooses to work like this so that people can see he is most definitely not one of these super apostle types. More to the point, they are not like him. There's no way these super apostles would come to wealthy Corinth and not make some money out of it. there are some so-called evangelists around today and they charge unbelievable fees to preach the gospel. They demand to be put up in the best hotel available and they are surrounded by a huge money-making machine. They don't arrive supported by their home church and preaching the gospel for free. To all and any who are ready to listen, you have to pay for the privilege of going to hear them, just to hear the gospel. They are not genuine gospel ministers, because that's not how genuine gospel ministers behave. Genuine gospel ministers don't fly home on private jets. And sit in their multi-million pound mansions. They just don't. They don't exploit people with the gospel in that way. Avoid them. You're about to hear in a moment where they're from. But the best command the biggest fee. Not in the church of Christ they don't. The greatest make themselves the least and are the servant of all. Because, point three, Satan is at work in churches. You do know that, don't you? Satan is at work in churches. Verses 13 to 15. These have to be some of the most startling and sobering words in the whole of the New Testament. Satan can be at work in a church deceiving its members and they don't even know it's happening. That's what he's teaching. The man might not even be a believer. And he's invited into the pulpit to preach. And then he's invited back to preach again. But Ian, Ian, this is Belvedere Road Church. Why, what are you troubling us with this for? We, we had Stuart Olius as our pastor, if you've forgotten. Some might say, even if they don't rate me very much. We had Stuart Olius as our pastor. Churches like this don't get caught out like that. Oh, really? Oh, Really? i remind you, the Corinthian church had the Apostle Paul as their pastor. And they got duped. I believe there are many churches all across the world where this is happening. Especially in those churches where the true biblical gospel, the true biblical <coughs> Jesus, is not being taught anymore. Oh, they use the words but they don't mean the same thing. And much of it is the work of the devil. And churches fall for it. Satan's not stupid, you know. He knows that if he appears in such a way that he's instantly recognizable as the devil, the game is up before he's started. I mean, let's just be ridiculous for a minute. Paul Paul's said, bear with with him in a little folly. Bear with me in a little folly. In he walks with his horns and his tricorn. You know, he's, hi, I'm the devil. Any chance of saying a few words? You know, what are we going to say? But that's not how he comes in. He's not stupid. In fact, he's unbelievably sly and cunning and deceitful. He is the father of lies. That's not how he works. He knows how to do it. Put on a disguise. Look like a preacher. Sound like a preacher. Wrap it up in packaging that people like. Use the right vocabulary. Have this marvelous presentational style. And the church falls for it. Again and again. The thing about the here's the thing about deception deception pretends that it is the truth. I mean that's the whole point of deception isn't it? A lie pretends it's the truth. That's what a lie is. A lie is masquerading as truth. And this is Satan's strategy in churches and he's very good at it. And so in he comes And Satan walks into churches in the guise of a remarkably gifted, charismatic, lovely man. They always are. You're not going to be taken in by someone who looks like Fagin and smells like Fagin's dog, are you? But him, look at him, listen to him. And Satan's got you. Satan's working like that in churches all around the world. Don't let it happen to you. Who are these men? False apostles, deceitful workers... Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. No wonder Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. And thankfully whose end will be according to their works. They will get the judgment their works deserve. God will deal with them. But don't let them have any dealing with you in the meantime. That's the message. Can this really happen in a Christian church? Come on in. Can this really happen in a Christian church? Well, flick over just a couple of pages and you find yourself in Galatians. Get to chapter 1 and look at verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. There isn't more than one gospel. You can't say, yes, but we have this gospel now. No, that's not a gospel. There is only one. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. It can happen anywhere. And of course, nowadays, they don't even have to travel. They're on all the God channels on TV, and they're getting millions of hits on YouTube. And Christians look they see this angel of light with a Bible in their hand. And they're taken in by all the packaging and presentation. But they're not properly listening to what is actually being taught. And if they could remove the mask that the preacher wears, they'd discover a very different face. We were thinking the other Wednesday about elders this is why churches have elders who are guard, charged with guarding, teaching, passing on the same pattern of sound words the faith wants delivered to the saints. Churches are more vulnerable than you think, even this one. Beware of those who preach another Jesus. Who is not the Jesus of the Bible. How can I know? The answer is easy. Know your Bible. Know your Bible. Because you'll find the real Jesus there. And only there. Read the scriptures. To know him. To love him. To understand his gospel message. So as not to be taken in. By pretenders. And imposters. Know your Bible. Be thrilled by truth, not by a Christian version of the X Factor. Be thrilled by truth. And we will keep ourselves as a chaste bride for Christ with a heart only for him.